Okay, let's go to the book of Jude today. Uh, we are back to verse number 11. Studying verse number 4 and verse number 24 and 25 by way of verse 11. All right, that makes sense for those who have been here for 16 other times, because that's how long we've been in this little book already. And um, we're working our way through a section from verse 4 through verse number 16, and it is not an easy journey. And I'm not going to apologize for what I'm sharing with you today. I think it's very important, even though nobody likes to talk about false teachers, uh, nobody comes away thinking, boy, was that edifying, you know, after talking about false teachers. We're doing it Sunday night and Sunday morning. Both services are in the same topic, but we're in Second Peter chapter 2 in the evening service. But we're talking about false teachers and the destruction they do to the church, and it is necessary that we grasp these things. It is necessary. I won't, under, I won't undermine that word at all. Uh, we need it not only for identity's sake. Right? We need to know how to spot them. But we also need it for ministry's sake. So that we know what we are to do. What we are to do. This isn't just for information's sake. And what I will share with you now, I, I kind of do this a little carefully just so you understand, I'm going to try to say this as clearly as I can. Jude does not call us to combat the false teacher. All right? Listen carefully. He doesn't call us to combat the false teacher. You may say, but verse number 3 tells us to, to uh, contend earnestly for the faith. Right? You see that. Contend for what? For the faith. It doesn't say contend against the false teacher. The point is, we need to build up in the faith as our defense, as our fortress in days where false teachers come out. We need to know what we believe and stand firm in it. And what we are contending for is the faith. And we need to know the faith. Because that's the first thing they want to undermine is your trust in God. They want to take you away from the Lord and make you think that you can't trust Him. And so we contend for the faith. And, and that's not attacking the false teacher. And I'll tell you what the difference is just real quickly here. Um, but I will also tell you a strategy I have and I've used over the years. When I was in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, we lived in a neighborhood that was frequently visited by the Jehovah Witness groups and Mormons and every. It was a big neighborhood, and a lot of them came through there. And my house was the first one on the block. And they didn't know I was pastor, right? And I didn't have a sign out front telling them I was. But I, I was very conscientious of the fact that right next door were two ladies in my church. They were widows, and they were sisters, and they lived together, and they were members of my church right next door. And as soon as those folks were done with me, they went next door to talk to them. And they were not prepared, and they were not able to talk to Jehovah Witnesses. 
So I engaged the next three or four hours of their life on purpose. Because I knew that the longer I kept them there, the less of the neighborhood they were going to get to. And that was the strategy, I know. But I did do that on purpose so that they, they wouldn't be down the street and bothering other people that I loved. And I didn't want them to, to confuse them. So I sacrificed a little bit of my time and I contended with them. All right? You want to know the success rate? I don't have any of them that said, boy, I'm going to change my mind about this. But I did occupy their time. And so I felt like a little victorious. I don't know what you want to call that. But uh, Jude doesn't tell you to go after them. I'll tell you why. And there's, there's a picture of this in another passage, too. Just so you know, Scripture has consistent places here. Just go over to 2 Timothy for a minute, chapter 2. 2 Timothy, chapter number 2. Just let me show you a couple of things here, and it's simple. And I'm not going to say either that there is no verse ever that says don't go after them. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying as a church body, how do we do this according to Jude's information? It's similar to what Paul taught Timothy. Uh, when dealing with false teachers, we're told to do several things. You ready? Start in verse number 14, 2 Timothy 2.14. Remind them... That's not the false teacher. Right? In the context, he's talking about faithful men who Timothy is to instruct and they become faithful and they instruct others. Right? That's earlier in the chapter. Remind them, the faithful men, of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God, watch, not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Invest, matter of fact, this is the option, verse 15. Rather, invest yourself in the knowledge of the Word of God. You might have study right there. Or you might have be diligent to present yourself to prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. Folks, we've got to invest in the Word of God. We've got to know it and be able to use it. He goes on, but avoid, notice, worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. How many of you want gangrene? No? Oh, I didn't think you would. All right. And it talks about among them are Hymenius and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. All right. If that doesn't sound like false teaching, I don't know what will. But what are you to do? Grow. That's a simple word that's coming. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house there's not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, some of honor, some of to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, that's wickedness, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Rather, 
Listen, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Oh, you said, there it is, Pastor. Correcting, that's the word you use for training a child. That's the word that you use for educating. Now, you have some teachers out here this morning. You walk into the classroom, your students are all eagerly waiting to be educated. So you, of course, you know, Stephanie. So you, so you say, I'm going to educate you for five minutes and you're done and you're all fixed. Is that education? No, it's not. It's going over it and over it and over and over it. And over it. Our typical technique with a false teacher knocking at the door is to tell them, I'm not interested. Shut the door. And their impression is what? Oh, these are great Christian people. It's kind of interesting that even in our ways of stepping away from it, we could also come away as those who need something. Need some help or some kind. I don't know what to say about this, except he's not talking to you about educating an unbeliever. He's talking about your education of other believers. You're training them, training them, training them, training them. That's where you get this whole picture of bond servants being active in the church. And what happens with those who are in opposition? Who are those? People in your church who have been confused. By the false teacher. And you talk to them. Do you let them go? You say, oh, well, you know, they fell for that line, so we're done with them. No. You go and talk to them. Correct them. Educate them. Work with them. Kindness. They're in opposition. Perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. It suggests to me something real simple, that those who are in opposition are actually those who have been trapped, according to verse 26. They've been trapped in the snare of the false teacher, the snare of the devil. It holds them captive. We have a job to those folks, and I'll tell you what, that's what Jude is telling you also in verse 23 and 24. Verse 23 and 24, the person we go to help, and it's not easy to rescue them, but are those who have been duped by the false teacher. He doesn't say go after the false teacher. He says go after, if I could use the word, go after their victims. Go and work with them. These are the ones that need your help. By the way, the same thing is taught in the next chapter of Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, he starts this again. Talking about this, realize this, in the last days, difficult times have come. And he starts to describe men in the last days. These are the same characteristics that Jude uses as the false teacher. Verse 2, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Are we in the end times? Have you ever seen these traits? They hold to a form of godliness, it says, 
although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. That doesn't say like you're going after them. It says like you're getting away from them. He said that several times in the other chapter too. For among them are those who enter into households that captivate weak women weighed down by sins, led on by various impulses. They're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Then he gives another example there in the passage. And so what do we do? What do we do? Verse 10, 2 Timothy 3.10. Follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. Again, it goes back to a passage like this. What is the Christian to do? What is the consistent call to the Christian living in light of false teaching in difficult days? What is he to do? He is to grow. He is to grow. He is to grow in his knowledge of the Lord. He is to continue to grow in his knowledge of this book. Let it shape you to be like Christ. And then be ready to minister to those who have fallen captive to false teaching. Then be ready. That's Jude's letter in a nutshell. And that's why we're going through this harder part, this description of the false teacher. It's necessary for you to be able to spot them, yes, but it's also necessary for ministry's sake so that you know what you are to do. Because the average person, I'm afraid, doesn't know what to do about it. We just don't know what to do. What do we do? Well, we have a calling. And that is to help prepare ourselves so we can help others. So, where have we been? Chapter uh, Jude 1, only one chapter, verse 5 through 10. We've looked at Old Testament examples. Or sum them up real simple. Talked about Moses and the Israelites in verse number 5. And they had a problem called unbelief. Still remarkable to me that they could not believe in the Lord when they saw his testimony all around them every day. And they could not believe. Illustration number two was in verse six. Came probably from Genesis chapter six. Angels who'd sinned. We just talk about bad behavior. Bad behavior. They're doing things contrary to what they were meant to do. And we could talk about that again, but it's all on tape. We've recorded that. It's on the website. Illustration number three is in verse seven, Sodom and Gomorrah. Excellent illustration of very bad behavior. Bad behavior, again. What did we sum that up as? Two things that identify, by illustration, what we're to look for. Number one, bad doctrine. Number two, bad actions. And it's true for every false teacher, that's the way it looks. Every description in the New Testament talks about his bad doctrine and his bad actions. And Jude says it this way in verse number 8. And in that same way, these men, these men go all the way back to verse number 4. Certain people who have crept in, crept in into the church. Told you J. Vernon McGee said that they must be creeps then. They crept in. These men act like that. That's what Jude says. Just like that. They dream. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. They revile angelic majesties. 
They replace truth with dreams is one thing. They defile the flesh. Isn't that bad action? Yes. Bad doctrine? Yes. They reject authority. They don't like you to confront them, by the way. They don't want you to confront them. No, they, they especially don't want that. They revile angelic majesties. Incredible lists. And when we covered that first half of the list, Jude simply says, these are the ways they will operate. By unbelief, abandoning where they're supposed to be, exhibiting bad behavior, following dreams, defiling the flesh, speaking about things they know nothing about going excessive in their actions and in their words, far beyond what angels are willing to do. And if they're allowed to have their way, they will tear up the church every time. There's never a good time, by the way, folks. You can never say, boy, that was a great sin, wasn't it? So beneficial. You can never say that of a false teacher either. Boy, were we glad he was here today. Never. False teachers only destroy. Jesus warned about similar things. He says the thief comes in to do what? Kill, steal, and destroy. Anybody think it's great to have a thief in the house? I'm looking around. Nobody said that. It's because we know that's bad news. Jesus just giving us the examples to look for. This is not a minor issue especially as the essence of it all is that they've turned our grace into sin and they have denied our Lord. And that was all the way back in verse number 4. So, we pulled out the camera last week. Remember, verse number 11, we took three pictures. Three pictures to help us understand these individuals. And one was of Cain, and one was of Balaam, and one was of Korah. And we were going to look at these three lists, and they're not pretty pictures, all right? You don't want them in your scrapbook. But they're three pictures of those who distort worship. That was number one, picture number one, and that was a picture of Cain. He distorted worship. We talked about him last week. And verse number 11 says, because of the path of Cain, they journeyed. They have gone the way of Cain. That's where the false teachers go. What is that? They destroy, they, they distort worship. Cain, in the end, it's not a happy picture, is it? He killed his brother Abel. We talked about that. Let's talk about the other two today. The other two, and I asked you if you were here last week, remember? Do a little homework. Go read the chapters that we have for these episodes. And if you did that, then you have a head start this morning. If you didn't, hang on. Here we got a lot of information coming your way. Second picture, pull it out of the book. Look at it. His name is Balaam. You heard that name before? Balaam had a talking donkey. You know what's amazing to me? He talked back. That was an astounding day. That I, I just sit back and look at that. Balaam, what were you thinking? Now, Balaam, he, he had a bit of a problem. All right? Balaam was a prophet. He was a prophet for hire, is what he really was. He was, a, he was a prophet. And it just so happened that Moses and the Israelites were coming up along the coast there of Moab. 
And the king of Moab says, I don't want these people coming to my land. What they're going to do is destroy me. And what I'm going to do is hire a prophet. And a prophet who could come and curse them. So that we could defeat them in battle. Is what he really wanted. And so Balak the king said, well, okay, Balaam, I heard you could do this. You could come and you could curse them for me. And that will solve everything I'm looking for. And I'll pay you good money for it. And when he first introduced that to Balaam, as the story goes, uh, they came and knocked on his door one day and said, Balaam, would you come? The king would like you to come over and, and curse some people for him so they could win in battle. Balaam didn't know anybody from anybody at that moment. And he says, well, I think I could do that. And God came to him and said, no, you won't. And Balaam went back to the, the guys and said, you know what? God told me I can't come. And they said, oh, come on. And they went back and they talked several times. And, and the money kind of got a little bit bigger, I think. And uh, the king was a little more persuasive. And every time they came back and knocked on his door, Balaam would say, well, let me go ask the Lord. Maybe he changed his mind. And he'd go back and talk again. And God said, no. And Balaam says, so I'm sorry, God won't let me. I mean, that sounds like it's all God's fault, right? And so the, another occasion came, and they said, oh, please just come. And, you know, and he says, and God says, okay, go. There was a smile on God's face that Balaam apparently missed. Because God says, lesson number two, Balaam, you're not going to listen to me. Let's see if you listen to a donkey. So Balaam got his donkey up and took off down the road. And he didn't get very far, and the donkey couldn't steer any longer. Something wrong with the mechanism. And it kept running into walls. And it kept running off the path. And Balaam was getting angry with his donkey, and he pulls out his, his stick and starts to beat the donkey. Remember the story? And as he's beating the donkey, the donkey says, What did I ever do to you? And so he starts talking back to the donkey and telling him he deserves to be beaten. And the donkey says, can't you see? I'm just simply trying to save your life. And suddenly Balaam's eyes were open and he could see what the donkey saw. And it was God standing in the middle of the road with a sword in his hand, ready to part him in two. That donkey saved his life. And Balaam says, okay, I, I won't go. I won't go. Lesson learned? No. God says, no, you go. I'll just let you say what I tell you to say. So Balaam went. And he stands up on the first mountain, and the king says, okay, do what you have to do as a prophet, but curse these people. Just curse them so I can have them defeated. And Balaam gets up there to do his job, and he says, we need so many altars and all these things, and they spend half the day, no doubt, setting it up for him. And finally he gets up there, and he says the most beautiful words you've ever heard about Israel. And the king popped a gasket. Says, that's not what I hired you for. You blessed them. I wanted a curse. He says, oh, wrong mountain. Let's try another one. And move to the second one. Guess what happened? Same exact thing. They set up the altars. He went out to speak a curse. And instead a blessing came out. The king was really mad. He says, one more time. Wrong place. Let's try another one. And they set up the third time. 
How did that go? You read the story, maybe. He blessed them again. The king says, you're fired. I don't want anything to do with you. You didn't bless, uh, curse them, you blessed them. Over and over and over again you blessed them. He was very frustrated with Balaam the prophet. Now what's not added to the story, but is revealed later in scripture, Balaam had plan two. Plan two, he went and pulled the king aside and he said, King, I know that you, I can't do anything but bless them. God has blessed them. But I know these people. And I know that they follow the Lord. And they are supposed to follow his instruction given in the law. And if they break that law, God gets angry with them and punishes them. And it's severe. And he says, if you want to get between God and his people, entice them to sin. And out of nowhere, a whole troop of very bad women came into the camp. And they enticed the Israelites not only to be immoral, but also to start worshiping false gods. And yes, God got angry. And Balaam got paid. You say, what a terrible story that is. Well, the rest of the story is when that Israel got into the promised land and was cleaning out the cities. Guess whose body they found among the rubble one day? It was Balaam. God destroyed him in the end. Interesting man this Balaam is. Why is he in the book of Jude? Describing a false teacher, it says, for pay, verse 11, for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. The error is a wandering According to the Greek word, it's a deceitful deception that deludes. I mean, that's a pretty handful of words. A deceitful deception that deludes. It's straying from what is true and what is holy. And Balaam was good at that. Balaam was an expert. He was a professional at leading people astray. He did it for hire, paid for his services, his reward, his wages. You know, false teachers work for more than just money, by the way. They work for applause. They work for popularity. They want to be noticed. They want a large following. It says in Peter that many follow them. That's what they like. But that's what they're working toward. And what's interesting is that they are given fully to it. Given fully to it. This is an interesting little word. To, to actually, they're pouring out everything for it. We use the word gush. They're, they're gushing, greedily, wanting this. It's very interesting because it's deceptive, it's hidden in the garb of a religious appearance. Balaam was a prophet, right? They said, oh, prophets, aren't they the good people? Aren't they the holy people? Aren't they the ones you want to listen to? They've got a message for us. We want to follow them. He's wearing the robes of the prophet and the turban of the prophet and speaking like a prophet. And all the while he wants the money. There's his heart. He wants the payday. 
He's gushing for it. He kept trying to manipulate the conversation so he could get paid. All the way through it was that way. He was fully given to it. And this is the picture we have in this text. They go rushing headlong into it. The false teachers do. It's really reckless to do that, by the way. Have you ever seen somebody run headlong into something without thinking about what it is? It's usually disastrous. All right? I don't know many times it really works well for them. But they have abandoned themselves of all their energies to get what they want. William Tyndale, way back in the 1500s, translated this sentence. They are utterly given to the error of Balaam for lucre's sake. Lucre's. Is that a great old word? For money's sake. Absolutely abandoned to it. That's the error of Balaam. The error of Balaam. Let me read to you something here. It's real simple. The error of Balaam was making merchandise of the gospel ministry. Balaam went wrong because he allowed himself to hanker after gain and so lose communion with God. He not only went wrong himself, but he abused his great influence and his reputation as a prophet to lead astray the Israelites by drawing them away from the holy worship of Jehovah to the impure worship of Baal Peor. That's the God they fell for. So, he was so big on himself and so endeavored to make their services attractive by excluding from religion all that was strenuous and difficult and opening the door to every kind of indulgence. This is Balaam. I've got a category, a word for him. The false teacher. We've seen already that they distort worship. The second thing they do, they serve money. If I wanted to make it simple, because Scripture says where your treasure is, guess what? There will your heart be also. One of the examination tools we can have is what is their desire? What is it they're after? What do they want? And if it's not for your edification, folks, I don't know why you'd want to be around them. They just want it for themselves. That's the picture of Balaam. That's what Jude brings out here. That picture. You like that in your scrapbook? Probably not. Let's take that one out. We don't want Cain's picture in there. We don't want Balaam's picture in there. Let's add Korah. Do you know Korah? Of the three, he's probably less known. Less known. But we've got to talk about Korah for a few minutes here. It's called the Rebellion of Korah. This is picture number three. And let me simply describe what that picture is that you're looking at. They protest against authority. They protest against authority. They fully destroy themselves for the sake of authority. Their own authority. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 16. I'll read this story for you, because it doesn't take three or four chapters like Balaam did. But Numbers chapter 16. Really, I think it's one of the saddest chapters in the Old Testament. This is again a picture of Moses and the Israelites out in the wilderness. Moses was told to lead. Remember, Aaron was told to be the priest 
uh, that was the way God designed it, that they were to serve the people and minister to the people as they followed along God. And the commandments have been given and everything has been done. They have uh, been working on the tabernacle and apparently it's done and they're now marching down the road. And suddenly Korah got an idea. And it says in verse number 1, chapter 16 of Numbers, Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohat, the son of Levi. Wait a minute, we've seen the word Levi before. Who's Levi? He's a priest. He's of the family, the tribe of the Levites. That's the priest. Moses was of the tribe of Levi. Aaron was his brother, of course, of the tribe of Levi. This is a relative, Korah. And he, with the sons of Eliab and On, the sons of Peleth, sons of Reuben, another tribe, they took action. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, that's a sizable crowd, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough. All the congregation is holy, every one of them. The Lord is in the midst. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? They wanted authority. (laughs) They didn't like Moses to have it. They went against the way God designed this, and they said, that's not right. Really, they're contending with God. So they stand up, and Moses heard this. says in verse number 4, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and who will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he chooses. He will bring near to himself. Do this then. Take censers for yourself, Korah, and all your company. Put fire in them. Lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man who... The Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. This is not a happy family reunion, by the way. You notice? Moses says to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it not enough for you that God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service to the tabernacle of the Lord, to stand before the congregation, to minister to them? And that he has brought you near Korah and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? Are you also seeking for the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abraham, the sons of Eliab, and said to them, We will not, but they said, we will not come. They're even showing contempt in their contempt. Is it not enough for you have brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey to have let us die in the wilderness? But you would lord it over us too. Indeed, you have not brought us into the land of flowing with milk and honey. You have not given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them. I have not done harm to any of them. Moses said to Korah, You and your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, before both you and they along with Aaron. Each of you bring your fire pan. So on, he told him to do that again. And so they did this. The next day, they assembled together. Verse 19, Korah assembled. All the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. 
And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Now picture this for a minute. You've got a whole bunch of men standing there with fire pans in their hands, trying to see which one the Lord's going to like and which one the Lord isn't going to like. There's another story similar to this, by the way. And it goes back to Aaron's two sons, who decided one day they were going to offer anything they wanted on fire pans before the Lord. And they came up with their own idea. And they're standing there in their priestly garments with their strange fire pans going. And suddenly fire came out of the tabernacle. And whoosh, they were gone. And it amazes me that anybody's really willing to try that one again. And here's a whole bunch of them standing before the Lord with these fire pans in their hands, saying, who's the Lord going to like and who's the Lord not going to like? You want to guess the rest of the story? Maybe you can, but let's, let's see what it says. Verse number 20, the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, I like this, I, I paraphrase it, step back, get out of the way, here it goes. All right, that's my paraphrase. No, here's the real one. Separate yourself from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. Oh, what a picture of pity. Oh, God, God of the spirit of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation and say, Tell them to get back from the dwellings of Korah and Dothan and Abraham. Moses arose and went to Dothan and Abraham, and the elders followed him, and he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing that belongs to them, or you will be swept away in all their sin. And they got back from around the dwellings of Korah and Dothan and Abraham. And Dothan and Abraham came out and stood at the doorway of their tents, along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. This is a picture I don't like. Photograph it right there in your mind. They're standing there, bold face defiance of the Lord. Standing there with their wives next to them and their children around them. And they all have that same look on their face. You see it? Defiance. Defiance. And they're standing there like, what could possibly happen? What could possibly happen? The rest of the story. Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds. This is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, which is the grave, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. And as he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open. The earth opened its mouth, swallowed them up, their households, all those men, and everything that belonged to Korah and their possessions. They all went down. Everything that belonged to them went down, and the earth closed over them, and they perished. And can you imagine standing there watching it? It opens. They're gone. It closes. Not another sound. Wow! What a scene! What a scene! 
Jude says they fully destroy themselves in the rebellion of Korah. He's talking about false teachers. And if you want a description of their end, their ruin, their punishment, their, their destruction, that's what, that's what Jude is pointing out here. God fully destroyed these people because they were defiant against His authority. Go back to verse 4 of Jude, and what, what are they against? They deny the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Don't take that lightly. That's God. And God's used the ground before to swallow people. False teachers have the boldness to deny the Lord. They have the boldness to say, it doesn't matter what the Lord says. What I have to say is more important to you. False teachers will tell you not to follow the Lord's instructions. Not to do what God has said. I'll give you examples of this, but they're real simple. Not more than 20 years ago, a leader among those who were trying to change the whole culture of the church recommended that Christians no longer bring their Bibles to church. They said, don't bring it, because the guy sitting next to you might not have one, and you don't want to offend him. Go ahead, tell the next military man you know, oh, don't take your weapons with you. What are we supposed to be learning God's Word. What would a teacher do if he says, oh, don't bring God's Word. You don't need it. And then he starts to teach, and guess what? You have nothing to compare his teaching to. He has taken away the authority you live by. Do you think that has ramifications? Oh, yes, it does. And it's all in a simple picture because you're trying to be nice to the guy next to you. That's what a false teacher would do. He denies authority, and he tries to get it away from you. And your authority is in the Word of God. It's because you read in there about your Lord and what He's told you to do and how you're supposed to live. And you're supposed to watch against these people who distort your theology, and people who, who distort your worship, and people who serve the money, and those who protest against authority. You're supposed to watch against these people. And that's what Jude's telling you to do. And they're very, very crafty. Like a Cain, or like a Balaam, or like a Korah. They're pretty outspoken. And many people fall to it. That's the picture. Those are the three photographs in front of us. And I don't have time to go on, because I've got more notes. Would you be surprised? Look at that. We'll bring that up again next week. I'm just going to come back to the simple point, folks. We need to grow in God's Word. Don't let them take your Bibles from you. All right? Don't let them do that. Matter of fact, learn to love God's Word. If you're not one who's in it all the time, wanting it, desiring it, spending time, as the writer of Psalms says in chapter 1, in the morning and in the evening, I want to meditate upon your Word. If you're not like that, say, Lord, work in my heart, please. Challenge me with that simple thing. Because I want an appetite for God's Word. I want it to be my food and my drink and my air. I want God's Word. Because we're coming upon a day, and I think it's coming soon, where people are going to say, you can't have that book. Hide it in your heart. Okay? There's your pastor speaking. Heavenly Father, 
We have a big job in front of us. And we just took a look at a couple of pictures today. They're not pretty pictures. But we had to see them again to know the danger that lurks. But it lurks out there right now. It could very well be trying to find its way inside of our congregation. We hope not. But we pray that we as a group are growing Growing in God's Word and learning to love it and learning to do it so that these things do not carry us away. Every wind of doctrine and every deceitful trick of man. Teach us to be strong, Lord. To be strong and healthy in your Word so that when the day comes when we need to help a brother or sister who has fallen for this, we're ready. We're able and we're willing. So work in our hearts today, Lord, we pray. As simple as that is today, help us to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.